turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Well, welcome back as we head into Hour 3, as we do almost every Wednesday. We do so um, so delightfully with our dear friend John Shattuck, former Congressman John Shattuck, uh, formerly representing for 16 years the old 4th Congressional uh, congressional district here in Arizona, here in Phoenix, which is, which is really the big one um, that made, um, I think, oh, did you succeed John Kyle? I did. So that was John Kyle's district before that. Uh, before that, it had to have been Eldon Rudd's. Eldon Rudd's, and at one time. Would it have been Steiger's before that? Well, it was John Conlon's. Or John Conlon's. Steiger's was to the west. Okay. But, but, it, but it could have been a time Steiger's came that far east. I yeah, 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 yeah. Then, of course, they had one of the most, by the way, bitter, I think I think probably the, one of the most bitter primaries in the history of America, if not certainly in the history of Arizona, when they were going at it for Senate uh, in 76. And I think, you help me out here, John, I think Steiger did best him in the primary, and a lot of Collins people stayed home, and DeConcini got in. Is that about your memory? Am I somewhere close to that? Pretty close, yeah. I, I think that's close. I, I remember DeConcini was you know, one of the rare Democrats, yeah. as was Raul uh, yes, Raul, Castro. No, not Castro, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, but... I think it was a shock to Republicans at yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah, that Arizona could do that, um, could elect a, a Democrat nationally. Of course, I was taken a little bit down memory lane with something you were telling me on the way into the studio about that you, and I didn't know this, you used to work for um, Jack Williams, former Governor Williams, who I think succeeded another prominent Democrat in Sam Goddard. I'm thinking he think did. That's right. Is that right? Absolutely. So it, yep. who was Terry's dad. So, and Jack Williams was a three-term governor. There weren't term limits in those days, as I recall. He served- Three two-year terms. Three, oh, okay. So we moved it to four-year terms after Actually, that. Actually, I think maybe he served the first four-year term. Yeah, he that may be. Served, he might have served two two-year terms and then a four-year term. That may very well be. That may very well be. Um, he was uh, He was considered a, a, a pretty uh, conservative Republican, Jack Williams. And uh, did he not come out of radio? Something tells me he was a radio host. Yes? He definitely came out of radio. Okay. He came out of KOY. Okay. He was on KOY for years and years. And I want to say he was also mayor. Yes, he was. He was mayor of Phoenix. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, before he became governor. And he had you, you tell you told me one of the fun things, and we'll do this maybe next week or if you want, we can even get to it this this week. But you told me one of the jobs he had you do was, was um, read books for him, read books to see if he be his basic filter to see if they were books worth reading, worth him him reading. That'd be fun to go back and check the notes on what books he had you read. He did have us re- have me read books uh, and give him a quick report. I don't know if he thought I was reading them at work, but my one of my main jobs, I think I've told you this story, was to answer calls from crazy people. And mm-hmm. if you get to know a public official, you'll discover that whoever mans their frontline phone will get phone calls. Now, today they're probably all answered my machines. I, I can't get through to or even Congress unless I have their uh, 
you know, their inside line. But back in the day, they were answered by the receptionist. And uh, when Governor Williams was off in office and I worked for him for about the last eight or 10, maybe 12 months he was in office, uh, one of my jobs was that the receptionist would get a call and it would be somebody certifiably you know, out of here and they'd be talking <laughs> about uh, the Martians or the spaceship they mm-hmm. had seen the night before and uh, in some cases the conversation they'd had with the Martians. And she would say to them something like, you know, we have an expert on staff about that. Um, let me put you through to <laughs> and, and so I would sit in And my you had office. to be polite, of course. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. I would sit in my office and talk to crazy people. And so reading books in between to give the governor reports was a, a, a very much of a relief. Uh, and uh, I welcomed part of the job. Well, you were telling me you just love coming in and doing political philosophy. And I thought maybe next week, if you want, it would be fun to think about books. Uh, we love talking about books, maybe books that influenced you over the course of your career, uh, over your lifetime, books you'd recommend. Uh, my producer, David uh, Dahl, suggested you write a book uh, called Growing Up with Goldwater. It'd be ah. a good title. But one of the great books that I was uh, that I would recommend uh, just to set it off and get the Shattuck uh, byline out there was your dad's book, What Happened to Goldwater, which was the story of the 64 collect, uh, uh, um, election. And that, that is a great, that is a great, I'm going to have you just move a little closer to that one. Yeah. That, was a, that was a great distillation of the Goldwater campaign and all the personalities in it. Um, so maybe next week we'll talk more about books, but that, that certainly would, would, would be a good book to reread and a good book for you to write. Uh, there are lots of things that I've thought about writing. I simply have never found, never been convinced there was a market for them uh, or sufficiently convinced to uh, get off to the process. One that I've thought about rewriting is how to win an election. Yeah. Uh, because it it is classic. Human nature doesn't change uh, fundamentally. And while all the tactics, all the tools we use today, uh, radio and, and now the Internet yeah. – uh, have changed dramatically from, you know, mimeograph machines. Or even when you first ran. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we had talk radio, but we really didn't have much of an Internet. No. Not in 94. Oh, absolutely not. Really. not. We didn't even have Fox News. So the tools have been changed dramatically, but the fundamental way that you uh, figure out, okay, who's going to decide this election and how do we influence them, those things haven't changed. Yeah. And uh so I've thought about on a number of occasions rewriting that book and, and just applying uh, kind of the, the human nature aspects of it and, and explaining how you could use to, today's tools and today's media. You know, I just said something, John Shattuck, that is worth thinking about for a moment. You guys swept the nation and made world history in 1994. And this was, as I just said, without the Internet. And I didn't mean that, that, this to slip by. This was pre-Fox News. There was no Fox News until 1996. That was kind of an interesting thing when you think about it because we complain often as conservatives about how hard it is to campaign, much less win or get an argument across the uh, to the American people. We have a lot because of the bias of the media. But the truth is, yes, the left has it too, but we have far more outlets than we did then. Uh, talk radio has grown substantially since then. Um, there are a lot of national hosts now. Then there was really pretty much 
Rush Limbaugh, which was a huge lever. Let me not underestimate how big Rush's impact was in 1994. But now there's a lot of mini Rushes, let's say. Um, and we have Fox News. We now have, I mean, in smaller doses, we have Newsmax and One America Network, a plethora more of talk radio and the Internet. And yet um, we complain. But then again, you know, take it back even another uh, decade and a half earlier, Reagan could win in 1980 when there was nothing, right? Nothing except the New York Times and the Washington Post. It was a very different world then than now. Uh, in 1994, uh, a great deal of our campaign was a combination of telephones and direct mail. Yeah, a lot of direct mail. You bet. And, and but also we used telephones. We would call people uh, during the day or into the evening. Uh, you had much better success into the evening. Uh, we would shut down at a decent hour, so we weren't calling into people's homes after, I think it was, 9 o'clock. Okay. But we had a – actually, at the advent of the computer and the and, and not really the internet, we had a computer program that would allow us to sort the people that we had talked to on a given night mm-hmm. and generate a piece of mail to them that night. Oh, wow. Uh, mentioning the conversation and, in some cases, referring to what issue they were interested in. Yeah. And print that letter and get it to the to the post office and have it be mailed the night we spoke to them, and across the valley most of it was delivered the very next day. Yeah. So they'd speak to you on a Tuesday night and get a piece of mail, or get they'd speak to one of my volunteers, and we used college stu- students in the uh, early years, uh, and continued pretty much to the end. But uh, they'd they'd speak to one of my volunteers on a Tuesday night and get a piece of mail from me on Wednesday, and I think that had an influence. It enabled us, you know, years later uh, in the Obama campaign, you know, they used uh, some electronic device for people to record a conversation or, or notes, make notes on a conversation. And they claimed that they literally knew every person who was going to vote for Obama on Election Day. Wow. Well, what, what we did is we had the ability to identify all the Republican primary voters who had made a commitment to vote for me and we turned them out like crazy. You know, uh, we've got to take a quick commercial break. My memory, too, is that Reader's Digest was important in those days. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the contract with America was Absolutely. printed in it Reader's Digest. It was printed Digest. in Reader's Digest. And it, it, that supposed, who thinks of Reader's Digest anymore? Yep. Then again, back then, um, it was a conservative. Uh, well, it caused great controversy because at one point, leadership didn't want to vote on the version that was in. <laughs> John Shattuck and I are um, in studio together. It's a delight to have him with us. He is the head of Shattuck Associates, and uh, he and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have John Shattuck with us, attorney in town, former congressman, uh, and the head of uh, Shattuck Associates. Uh, John, actually, one last thought about Reader's Digest. To give an idea of how impactful it was, I remember once upon a time, William Buckley was once asked how many subscribers he had at National Review, and he had a great response. He said, together with Reader's Digest, we have (laughs) (laughs) 3,050,000. But it was impactful in those days. It was a conservative. It's one of these sad tragedies, actually, about uh, institutions and journals that have lost their rightward lean or their rightward or conservative tilt 
Speaking of National Review, there's the old John O'Sullivan rule. He was the publisher of National Rule who came up with the O'Sullivan rule, which is any institution that is not outwardly and definitively conservative will become liberal over time. We see this with a lot of magazines, newspapers. Some people are complaining about that with Fox News. But we also see it um, massively with uh, foundations and institutions. I mean, I'm sure the Rockefeller Foundation is nothing, or that, for that matter, the Ford Foundation or the Count Carnegie Foundation. None of these foundations would be recognizable to their original donors, I'm sure, much less Eli Yale, <laughs> you know. It's an interesting thing, the tilt. Very few things go from left to right, but a lot goes, it seems, in the culture from right to left. Well, uh, we better figure out how to change that. Yeah, yeah. And I think one of the reasons, of course, I wasn't there when it was done, but one of the reasons they picked the Reader's Digest is that Newt understood we couldn't uh, be talking or the Republicans in the U.S. House who wanted to take the majority and who created the contract with America couldn't just talk to the philosophical. Uh, had it, they put it in National Review, for example, you know, nobody would have read it. But by putting it in the Reader's Digest, which is read by or was in, the, in that day read by millions of you know, middle-of-the-road Americans who didn't see themselves as conservative, that was just Americana, mm-hmm. and they were— uh, you know, brief uh, snippets, uh, short stories, fascinating uh, items that you could read whether you were left, right, or middle, uh, and and you didn't pick it up because it was left, right, or middle. You picked it up because it was, you know, something that you could do that where you could read what other people were reading mm-hmm. or a short version of it, and then decide. I'll go read uh, the original version or the uh, the full length version, and and they not only picked that venue to publish the contract, but they put it on, it, it was uh, on l- almost cardstock yeah. inside the Reader's Digest so that people could pull it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they would read it and many would pull it out and say, wow, mm-hmm. uh, I like this. And and that was the one of the things that my dad taught as a campaign manager was, you know, today they tell you, oh, well, you can't say more than 10 words. Yeah. You know, people will never read it. He had a belief that you could, in fact, Good. tell people things in greater depth, um, but you needed to give it to them to keep. And that certain number of people who would read it would pull it out and read it and then show their neighbors. So uh, back in the day, people did political advertising in newspapers. And sometimes I'd hear people criticize my dad and say, oh, that's crazy. Nobody will read that great big long ad. And you would design the ad so that they could get the message by just reading the headlines, but you would give detail mm-hmm. below that. And you knew that most readers wouldn't ever read the detail. But what my dad argued was that Hilda or Martha or Jack or Jim, who had taken an interest in either that issue or had taken interest in your candidate, would read the detail and then they would often pull out that advertisement from the newspaper, put it away and either show it to their friends or their family or just discuss it with their friends and family at a later point in time. And it, uh, it, it also backed up one of the things that people don't realize, and that is uh, there have been a number of studies by professors, one of which my dad used to cite regularly, which uh, show that the single most important influence in any election is not a speech or a policy 
or even a philosophy of the candidate. It's not a position they took. It's that someone they knew and someone they had already respected said to them, you should vote for Shattuck. No kidding. And and that the the, the real key is people listen to their friends. Mm-hmm. And they actually proved it in a study following or done during the Dewey Tuman race. Well, I didn't know that, John, but I have believed that for years. On this show, uh, or, uh, when I was in Washington, you know, come election season, when people would like to call in from the corner of, oh, I don't know, Tatum and Shea, let's say, where they were holding a, a rally on a corner and stuff. I always thought that was such an important thing that people do that because I think it's important, particularly for conservatives or people inclined to vote for a conservative message or candidate, to know that they're not alone. Right. To know that there's there's a group out there. You know, you may not talk to them on a day-to-day basis or see them on a weekly basis, but you're not crazy. There's a lot of people out there um, who are of the same belief, and it's okay to have it. And and it and it's driven by the fact that uh, if they know and already respect the individual, whether it's uh, a person they work with mm-hmm. and have come to admire at work, or whether it's a family member yeah. they know is informed, and that family member or that person at work says to them, "Well, you know, I'm voting for Trump or I'm voting for Biden." It influences. Yeah. It. It's one of the things that I think uh, is not good about the East Coast. Um, I think that the density of uh, leftists uh, is such that it's hard to be a conservative yeah. in a neighborhood back there. Yeah, it is. Uh, but it wasn't always in some respects. Uh, Reagan did very well in Massachusetts, for example. Um you know, that that is kind of – we're going to take a break in a second, but that is kind of a question I wanted to ask you. Uh, and I guess the earlier conversation might have been a nice prelude to it because you, you're, we're now getting a lot of columns and have been a lot of essays and columns and papers about how the Republican Party has so many demographic problems now. It has a youth problem, a Generation Z problem. I think 77 percent of those under between the ages of 18 and 26 voted for Biden, for example. That's a very large number, 77 percent. Um, a suburban problem, which used to be the Republican victory was in the suburbs. Now it seems to be the educated suburban person. When we come back from the break, how viable is the Republican Party comparative to years past? And what does it have to do or need to do to become uh, more viable than it is if it's not very viable right now? In other words, are we a minority party that is becoming more and more of a minority party? Or are we just kind of in a doldrum or a sad moment or maybe not even a sad moment but a slump? Is it our candidates <laughs> Uh, would you address all this when we come back? How, how the potential and str- the strength sure. and potential of the Republican Party uh, with John Shattuck? That's what we're going to do when we come right back. And John and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. That's a pretty good song for this segment. Uh, John Shattuck is my in-studio guest, a veteran of the conservative movement, former congressman and the head of Shattuck Associates here in town, attorney, great attorney. The vi- 
the the obituaries to the Republican Party are they too premature, John? Uh, we we keep reading about we don't have the youth, we don't have the women, we're losing them by the day, we don't have the educated anymore. Things that used to be you know ballasts for the Republican Party. Is it about the candidate um, in any given election cycle? I'm having a a friendly – fight is the wrong word – but friendly disagreement with several of my friends. You know them all about does anything matter anymore? Um, We watched the head of the teachers union last week just lying to Congress. You would think that would be a big deal. It's just gone. No one cares. You have a president who's non-compass mentis. No one cares. Everyone knows it's a joke, but we're living in some kind of emperor's new clothes. Do do these things not matter? Does does anything matter? And can the Republican Party seize on it and make people think they matter? How can a party that stands for um, sexualizing and racializing our children, uh, no limits whatsoever on abortion up to and including through the ninth month and indeed birth, um, and uh, highlights and promotes people that can't string together, never mind uh, two sentences, not even one sentence, be it our governor or our current president. How, 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 do, how, how does this happen? Does anything matter? And, 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 and can the Republican Party someday, again, be viably profitable on any of this? I, that's a big wind-up. Take it, <laughs> take it wherever you want. <laughs> a, Fix it is, for us, John. Yeah, that is a huge wind-up. Uh, and I'll begin with a uh, similarly similarly proportioned um, <laughs> caution or, or uh, warning. I don't know the answers to those questions. Uh, what I will do is give you my take on some of them. Um, the The hardest one for me is the one that you spent the most time on here after the break, which is, does anything matter? Anymore? Yeah, yeah. Because I struggle with that. Um, I watch uh, the level of lying and deceit yeah. uh, by politicians. Uh, it, it used to be, I don't think, not that long ago, that if you gave a speech on the floor of the House when I was there and it had just flagrant lies in it, mm-hmm. it just stated things that absolutely were not true, somebody would come down on you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the House, we were allowed to take down the words. I remember that. Um, and then you'd have a discussion. And oftentimes the person would wind up uh, admitting mm-hmm. that they had exaggerated or gotten caught up in the moment. Um, I worry about the decay of our society and where we're headed. And on that, uh, I don't know where we're going. And it and it genuinely scares me. Uh, it does appear that uh, lots of things don't matter anymore. And and singularly important among them is the truth. You know, it used to be that we differ about policies. Mm-hmm. Um, is a work requirement for welfare good or bad? Right. Now we lie about statistics. Uh, I guess. Uh, right. Great point. Illegal immigration is a great point on this. So the press yeah. secretary says Joe Biden has improved illegal immigration 90 percent. Oh, my God. How, how in the, right. how in the right. world can she right. get away with that? I was about to say, Mr. Mayorkas, I think, yeah, right. is the most stunning example. The border of, is secure. The, right. The border is secure. Right. Uh, actually, um, our United States senator, one of our United States senators yesterday yeah. uh, was on TV, and, and she, uh, Mayorkas was quoted that same quote, yeah. oh, it's the, the border is secure. And she said, nobody with eyes mm-hmm. believes that. Yeah. 
Um, so it's shocking that people do that, and they he should be, in my view, impeached for that mm-hmm. because we ought to have a standard in American that, that politicians can't just flagrantly and stunningly lie every day. My dad used to say the unrefuted lie becomes the truth. Yes, of course. And in public relations battles, if uh, whether it's a, a political campaign or a public policy issue, if you let your opponent lie about you and you don't refute it, and you let them repeat that again and again and again, people are going to believe it. To move on quickly about the Republican Party, it is not dead. Okay, hold that. Hold that. That's 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 the important one here, too. I, we'll never figure out if things matter anymore. <laughs> but we'll see. We, we can figure out if the Republican Party has a heartbeat and a brain pulse with John Shattuck. This was a short segment. We have a longer one coming up, and I'll let you give the full answer on that when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. John Shattuck is my guest. Uh, he came originally for the talk, but he stays for the music. <laughs> Almost <laughs> o- true. Ongoingly, let's keep a note uh, between ourselves, John. Let's correspond between ourselves on things with regard to apathy, things that shock us, the apathy over which shocks us, whether people care, because it's a, it's going to have to be a bigger discussion for us. But do talk to me about the viability and uh, of the Republican Party right now, from your perspective. Well, again, a disclaimer: I'm I'm not sure I have all the answers or all the right answers, but uh, I think it is clear that the Republican Party is going through a difficult time, and uh, I think that's driven by uh, kind of the political climate in the nation. I think that. Uh, we had a president who believed deeply and said repeatedly that this was a bad nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, a, a United States president who went around the world and gave an apology tour and acknowledged all of the things we've done wrong. I'm not here to say he was wrong about some of the things he cited that we are not proud of. Uh, obviously, slavery was one. But where in the world is it better now than here? So um, I think the reaction in the Republican Party was uh, that we remained polite and quiet while he made those claims. And then when it was our turn, uh, a lot of people were disappointed that Republicans didn't fight back strong enough. And I think that created the dynamic that uh, enabled President Trump to get elected and to do so many good things uh, that he was able to do. Um, It has led to some division amongst Republicans. I have lots of moderate friends who are aghast at people, the people who support uh, President Trump. They are aghast at the label MAGA. Uh, They they are not offended when President Biden calls Republicans or some Republicans MAGA Republicans. To me, MAGA Republicans are are patriotic Republicans who were offended by lots of things that happened in this nation uh, under uh, Obama's watch and by lots of things that are still happening in this nation under uh, the current president's watch. And, And some of those are vastly worse than what happened before. And they're scared and they're angry. And so... Uh, 
we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we bring those two groups, the moderate or centrist Republicans who do believe in free freedom and free markets, uh, who don't believe, for example, at least they, I don't think they believe that men can become women and can make that decision when they're five years old, six years old, seven years old. Uh, and then they look and say, well, but the other people that share us in that view are too extreme in some of their positions. Uh, so we're, we're challenged by that. Uh, I do think candidates matter immensely. Last cycle in Arizona, we offered up, uh, in all fairness, the worst slate of candidates I have ever seen as a party in this state. Uh, I'm not saying they weren't well-intended. I think probably every single one of them was well-intended and worried about the future of the nation. But I think to a person, none of them had experience in their field. We ran an attorney general candidate who'd been an attorney for three years, five years, maybe not longer. That makes absolutely no sense. The governor's candidate that we nominated uh, had no experience in public office. Uh, Up and down the line, the attorney general's candidate we had was similarly not uh, tremendously qualified. With one exception, that was the, uh, the county attorney's candidate we offered here in Maricopa County was experienced and qualified, and she won. So uh, we need uh, people with knowledge and experience to offer themselves for office and to make that sacrifice. And it does make a difference. It makes a difference not only in how they perform the job, which is hugely important, but it makes a difference in what they say in the course of a campaign. Our United States Senate campaign uh, candidate last time in the primary said things that only a narrow wing of the nation or the state agreed with, and even just a narrow wing of people in the party agreed with. And he allowed himself to take uh, extreme positions, which were then crammed down his throat during the campaign. It used to be that you wouldn't, I guess I point out, Goldwater ran for uh, city council and I think school board, school board and then city council before he ran for the United States Senate. Um, John Kyle ran for the Congress and served there many years before he ran for the U.S. Senate. John McCain ran for and served in the U.S. Congress before he ran for the U.S. Senate. And we offered up this last cycle a guy who uh, hadn't ever run before for anything, and I think it's fair to say hadn't lived much of his life in Arizona. He'd been here as a child, then been gone for most of the time, gotten very wealthy, and comes back and says, I'll be a candidate for U.S. Senate. If we can't offer better candidates— And candid- not from Maricopa either, and, which is right. its own problem, by the way. It, it is. That is a problem. You know, and it, it, That kind of uh, conduct by the party is inexcusable, and it's going to— Uh, lead to losses. So here in Arizona, it's pretty easy to see why we got devastated. Uh, We cannot do that again. We owe the people better than that. But a lot of people you talk to say, well, I would never run. I would never expose myself. Um, I I, I think so. So that's a key point. I think another point is when you brought up, which is how radically left the other party is going. So the viability of one party all, always depends to a certain degree on the position yeah. or or the uh, ground being staked out by the other party. And woke Democrats are p- 
plunging off the cliff, in my opinion. There's, there's, there's an interesting theological debate about whether you can become a saint through other people's sins. I bring it up from time to time <laughs> in the course of politics. I don't know if you can be a saint on other people's sins in politics, but if you are going to be a saint on other people's sins, you have to be saintly. And maybe that just is a nice way to end this, because, John, when we opened up to one of the problems we talked about— that bitter, divisive primary in 76, which led to the Democratic um, uh, election of, uh, of, of a U.S. senator in Arizona. I've never seen such division in our party in the primary campaigns, and that's a message we need to understand, too. Quit writing the Democrats' talking points for the general election. John Shattigan, it is wonderful having you here. Glad to be here. It's happening today. Yeah, it's at, happening again today. We're run, doing it again. Run right now in the presidential race. Doing it again. Against Mr. DeSantis. Yep. Shocking. Folks, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy with the banks and the stock market and recession on the horizon? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the Fed or the stock market? Why Refi has that investment. It's an investment in a portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. There are no fees in this secure collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. Why Refi is local. Encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road, the 101. I've been there a couple few times, and I can tell you, no one's going to ask you to sign anything. You won't get a sales pitch. They just like talking about what it is that they do, and you will see when you meet with them why I trust and like them so much, and you will too. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. As I say, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. The word invest, the letter Y, R-E-F-Y dot com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. 888-YREFI-34. I was thinking a little bit about Jack Williams. Um kind of a legendary governor here in Arizona who John Shattuck was mentioning he worked for. Uh, he was known as One-Eyed Jack. Did you know anything about him, David? Did you know? Because he, he had a, um, a, a yeah, uh, he had one eye. Yeah, and he had a, 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 instead of an eye patch, he had uh, glossed over the glass uh, on, on, on his eye. But he was a radio broadcaster here. And he used to, on his radio show, open up with a signature line. We kind of end with signature lines now. He opened up with a signature line. I'll give it to you. Kind of fun. It's a beautiful day in Arizona. Leave us all enjoy it. Isn't that great? It's a beautiful day in Arizona. Leave us all enjoy it. And you know what about that reminds me of this notion of not Californian or Arizona. You know, there is something good there is something special. There is a reason people move here, particularly from California. And one of the things they move here for is the economics. But this idea of being, you know, more conservative or commonsensically economically oriented is not going to last long here if you bring with it your social liberalism. You can't admix the two and expect to still have economic freedom when you have socialist, progressive social policies. One drives the other. 
if you think the economy in California is merely about tax rates, you're not paying enough attention. All right, folks, thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leapson. God bless you all. Class is dismissed.